good morning. It's good to see all your faces this morning. How's Christmas season going for you so far? Great for some of you, silence from the rest. How many of you have your Christmas shopping done? Raise your hands. The one who said it was great. Oh, here's some back here. I see you. I see you. How many of you love Christmas shopping? Raise your hands. <laughs> All right, a few, a few. How many of you are like, oh my gosh, once this is over, my life will return to normal. I'll feel so much better. Yeah, I see that too. It is a joy to be together, particularly as the season gets busy. It can be, um, it can be tempting to try and uh, just sort of move past it to get it over with. And, and I don't blame us for feeling that way. Um, and yet we have this wonderful opportunity to linger on the things that we very quickly go over, to linger on hope and on peace and on joy and on love. And so um, today, you know, is Advent week of joy. Uh, and so we're going to read our scripture and then we're going to talk about it because those two things might not jive once we read the scripture. Um, I, I want to point out, does someone have one of your orders of worship? Kari, you have an order of worship. Can you just lift it up? So Kari is lifting up an order of worship. See how on the front that tells us everything that we're doing. And then when she turns it around, see on the back, there's the scripture. And then there's our words of forgiveness. We do this on purpose. We have made this order of worship easy for you to hang on to, to put into a purse or to put somewhere. And we print the words of forgiveness on there and the scripture on there so that if you are so inclined, you can read it again. And it's not going to be a huge thing that clutters. We know people who have taped it into their car, onto their car dashboards or who put it on their refrigerators or who put it somewhere where maybe they'll just see it even just one more time this week. I really encourage you to do that, particularly if you don't always know that you are loved and forgiven by God. How many of you ever doubt that? Raise your hand. Really? Just a few of you? Because I will put up two. Um, if you ever need that reminder that you are loved or forgiven, there's no better way than to turn to the scripture and see right there in black and white that you are loved and you are forgiven and that you are embraced by God as you are, even though you will not be left as you are. So I encourage you, hang on to that flyer, hang on to our order of worship, put it somewhere where you can read it just one more time during the week, but don't miss that opportunity to be able to be reminded of how God breaks into our everyday lives. Deal? Oh, you know I'm going to keep talking at you, so you better just perk up a little bit. <laughs> I see you, left side, over here. <laughs> They're carrying your weight. That's okay, we're a community, we can do it. Today we're reading out of the message, but we're going to jump around from some other translations too. You don't need to worry about that now, but just know it's coming. Matthew 11. This is John the Baptist. It says, John, meanwhile, had been locked up in prison. When he got wind of what Jesus was doing, he sent his own disciples to ask, Are you the one we've been expecting, or are we still waiting? Jesus told them, Go back and tell John what's going on. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the wretched of the earth learn that God is on their side. Is this what you were expecting? Then count yourselves most blessed. When John's disciples left to report this to John, Jesus started talking to the crowd about John. 
What did you expect when you went out to see John in the wild? A weekend camper? Hardly. What then? A chic in silk pajamas? Not in the wilderness, not by a long shot. What then? A prophet? That's right. A prophet. Probably the best prophet you'll ever hear. He is the prophet that Malachi announced when he wrote, I'm sending my prophet ahead of you to make the road smooth for you. Let me tell you what's going on here. No one in history surpasses John the baptizer. But in the kingdom that he prepared for you, that God prepared for you, the lowliest person is ahead of him, ahead of John. For a long time now, people have tried to force themselves into God's kingdom. But if you read the books of the prophets and God's law closely, you will see them culminate in John, teaming up with him and preparing the way for the Messiah of the kingdom. Looked at this way, John is the Elijah that you have been expecting to arrive and introduce the Messiah. If you will, please pray with me. God, as we come to your scripture today, we pray that you will illuminate our hearts and our minds to understand your spirit and your heart more clearly. We pray that you will speak the truth into our souls in a way that we need to hear, in a way that maybe makes us a little uncomfortable, but also comforts us. Only you can do those two things at once in the way that is transformative to our lives. And so that's what we're praying for. May we hear you. May we know you better. And may we be people who absorb your truth and then reflect it out into the world. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So for the last three weeks, we have been spending Advent with John the Baptist who we know is a quirky kind of guy. He's this zealot who lives in the desert, a man who stood on the edge of society, who ate bugs and wore animal skins when a Mediterranean diet and linen were what was in style. He spent the majority of his time shouting into the crowds from his ancient soapbox about the coming end of the world. And in fact, that's how we started this Advent season three Sundays ago, talking about hope. We listened to John lecture the crowds about the coming Armageddon. And then last week, as we stood here talking about peace, we listened to John chastise the Pharisees and the Sadducees, calling them a brood of vipers. What I'm saying is that I don't think that John the Baptist was the kind of guy that you would invite to be the life of the party. You know what I mean? If you were down and out, I don't think that John the Baptist was the guy who would come up to you with a hang in there kitten poster and say, buck up, buddy, it's all going to be better soon. I think that John the Baptist was more like Geldof than he's like Bono. I think he's more like Malcolm X than he was like Martin Luther King Jr. When my friend Jen would get annoyed at the stubbornness of people, she would say to me, I just want to push them off the curb. And John the Baptist was that kind of guy. He pushed a lot of people off of the curb. But even though John doesn't talk about hope like we would imagine he would talk about hope, and even though John doesn't talk about peace the way that we would imagine he should talk about peace or joy in the way that we think he should talk about joy, as we'll probably see today, that doesn't mean that John is wrong even though he might be sort of uncomfortable 
to be around. John is one of the best spiritual navigators that we've got when it comes to Jesus and to living as people who are part of the kingdom of God. As Jesus said in our scripture passage for today, John came to make the road smooth and straight for us to understand. Which is part of what makes our scripture for today so disconcerting. And maybe possibly comforting. I guess it sort of depends what way you're coming at it. Because in our scripture passage for today, this stalwart, sure-footed, unwavering zealot questions if Jesus really is who Jesus says he is. So now in some ways, John's questioning and doubt can be uncomfortable for us today because if John wasn't sure that Jesus was the Savior, then whoever else in the world could be sure. John wasn't only the last great prophet, but he was also Jesus' cousin. So we would imagine that he had a pretty good understanding of who Jesus was. So how could he, of all people, how could John doubt? We're going to look a little bit more closely about what's going on here. Why is it that John is suddenly questioning Jesus now when he seemed so certain about Jesus before? So when we encounter Jesus, John in our scripture for today, John is in prison. He's been put in prison by Herod, more or less because John had this knack, he sort of found it funny, to embarrass Herod by regularly pointing out that Herod had stolen his brother's wife. And it embarrassed not only Herod, but it embarrassed his new wife. And so John is in prison. And John is in prison suffering. He's not happy because he fought the law and the law won. So now he finds himself with a lot of time on his hands to think. And John starts to think things, consider things in a different way. John had put his faith in Jesus as the Messiah, who was supposed to free the Jewish people from the oppressive rule of Herod and from the Roman government. John lived as part of the Qumran community. They lived out in the desert in the middle of nowhere. They're the ones that we believe wrote um, the Dead Sea Scrolls and left them sealed up there so we could find them years later. They used to talk a lot about God's justice how, and how that justice was going to come at the end of the world. So it's not like John was just all by himself. He was by himself when we encounter him in scripture, but he hung out with a lot of people that were like him, that had their own tradition, their own things that they emphasized. They were like their own denomination, okay? And so he believed, along with the rest of his community, that the Messiah was supposed to bring a new socio-political order, one that was going to topple Caesar and the Romans, but would keep the thrones and would put the Jewish people in the palace as the ultimate rulers. That's what John had put his life on the line for. That that's what he was trying to do when he stood up to Herod and when he countered that political power. He was trying to be God's kingdom by standing up to the oppressive authority. But now, here he is. He's rotting in prison, while the one that he thought was the Messiah is out gallivanting around the desert. So we can understand from John's perspective why he might question Jesus' credibility. If Jesus was the Messiah, then why wasn't he getting an army together? If Jesus was the Messiah, then where is the rallying cry? If Jesus is the Messiah, then 
Why has John been left in prison as his fellow comrade in arms? I don't think that John is questioning Jesus out of some high theology that we don't understand. And I don't think that it's coming from some prophetic whisper of God or intuition that John the Baptist has. I think that John starts to doubt Jesus for a deeply personal reason. Because right when John thought that Jesus would be there to help him, Jesus was nowhere to be found. I think that John questioned Jesus because John was suffering, and he was suffering alone. Which I think many of us here can sympathize with, am I right? Am I right? Thank you. I think many people throughout the world echo that same frustration in the face of suffering and brokenness and corruption in the world. It's the question of atheists and believers and of everyone in between. If Jesus is who he says he is, if God is who God is supposed to be, then why are we still suffering? If Jesus is who he says he is, then why aren't things better off than they are? It's hard to believe in Jesus when what we see and what we experience in our lives doesn't line up with the great promises that Jesus makes. It's hard to not question the one who says that things will get better when things seem to get worse. And that's where John is coming from in our passage for today. He may have been certain once. He may have really been convinced of who Jesus was of who Jesus is. But now that he's in the face of suffering, he's not so sure. So he sends his disciples to go ask Jesus if he really is the Messiah, and Jesus replies by saying this, Go and tell John what you yourself hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them which when we hear it today, might sound like Jesus is stating what John already knew. Didn't John know that that stuff was going on out there? It might sound like Jesus is just sort of providing a reminder to John of what he's been up to this whole entire time, like John had forgotten it or something. But what scholars think Jesus is doing here is not just reminding John that, oh yeah, don't you remember who I am? but that Jesus is drawing John's attention to a different part of the messianic promise. There are parts of the Hebrew scriptures that talk about the Messiah as that socio-political conqueror, like the Qumran community thought, like John the Baptist thought, like all of the zealots in the desert thought. And those parts of the Hebrew scriptures were the parts where John the Baptist and the Qumran community, they loved those parts of the Bible. Anyone else love certain parts of the Bible and maybe not so many others? Yeah, we can have sympathy for it. Yes? 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 Okay, good. I'm so glad we are awake now. But that one segment of who the Messiah would be, that one part of the Bible that they all loved, that they had really invested 100% in on, that one segment of who the Messiah would be was not the whole picture. This new sociopolitical order, it was going to come to overthrow, yes, but 
it wasn't going to come primarily to benefit the people who had power and who had agency. Even though they were the ones who were on the political outs, they were still the people who had some authority. It was going to come to benefit most those people who had been pushed beyond the edges of society. It was going to benefit most the ones who had been counted out. And it was going to benefit most the people who couldn't find a life raft to provide them just a moment's rest from the relentless work of keeping their head above the rising waters. That is who that kingdom was going to come and benefit first. It appears as though what Jesus is doing here is attempting to shift John's perspective from that myopic hell of his own suffering and to raise him up to that 35,000 foot view of the suffering that encompasses all of humanity. Jesus doesn't give any indication when he does this. He doesn't give any indication that he's not sympathetic to John's suffering or that somehow John's suffering isn't a big deal or it doesn't matter. It does. Jesus is just not letting John make eternal decisions off of one moment of his own suffering. Have you guys, um, you know, if I were to take this piece of paper and I were to hold it right here, I can't see anything else, right? So if I were to step off of this riser, I wouldn't know it, and you would all have to take me to the hospital. I would have no idea what happened, right? It's not until you move it away that you can start to see what's around. That's what Jesus is doing. It's not that he's taking it away. He's just giving it some more perspective. And Jesus does that a lot, because for Jesus, it's very rarely about the individual alone, and it's nearly always about the wider community as a whole, and most of the time, humanity as a whole. It's not that one person's suffering doesn't matter, that it's not important, it is. It's just that one person's suffering isn't all of the suffering. Jesus finishes his response to John by saying, and blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me, which is also translated as, and blessed is anyone who does not stumble because of me. Which to my ears sounds a little bit like an assurance. Do not stumble in your faith because I am not what you imagined I would be, says Jesus. Do not turn your back on what you know to be true because you were expecting something very specific from me. My friends, Jesus is not less than our specific expectations and imaginations. Rather, Jesus is more than them. And sometimes when we are focused on seeing only one thing, we are missing the hundreds of other things that are happening all around us. When all we are willing to look at is right in front of our face, we can't see the rest that is happening. We can't see what else God is doing. And I don't know about you, but for me, that is really joyful news. It might frustrate me sometimes. It might cause me to throw up my hands and to question or to doubt, which it does occasionally, maybe more than occasionally. But it's joyful news, isn't it? That Jesus is bigger than what I alone can imagine. Isn't it good news that Jesus is so much wider than the one experience that I am encountering. 
After John's disciples leave, Jesus spends some time talking to the crowds. And I don't know what I would have imagined that Jesus would be talking about with those crowds. But if I were in the crowd and I had heard John's disciples come up to Jesus and say that John is doubting who you are, then I would imagine that Jesus was trying to provide them some sort of comfort, right? Because this person who they had relied on to point them and make the, the crooked road smooth is doubting, is questioning, is wondering. And so if I were Jesus, maybe I'd be like, don't listen to him. He just woke up on the wrong side of the jail cell. It's all going to be okay, right? I don't know what I would say, but what Jesus says, I think, is telling. He says, what did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who wear soft robes are in the royal palaces. So what is it that you went out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is and about whom it is written, see, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. What Jesus does is he reminds those crowds of who John is. Just because John is doubting doesn't mean that somehow he's not who God has created him to be. Just because John is questioning doesn't mean that he's not reliable. Just because John is uncertain doesn't mean that anyone else needs to think that he's lesser than or that they should be uncertain too. In that moment, I think that Jesus is normalizing questioning and doubt as part of the practice of faith. Just because we doubt doesn't change how much we are loved. Just because we doubt doesn't change who God has created us to be. Just because we question doesn't alter anything about us. I really see Jesus normalizing that process of questioning and testing and wondering about our faith. And I think that we need to make an effort to do the same. So often it can be easy for us to think that if we do not maintain certainty in our faith, that somehow we're lesser than, or we, we've gone off the rails, but my friends, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. If only we too could normalize that understanding that questioning is part of the experience of living in faith then maybe we too could accept that no matter what we do, no matter where we go, no matter what we say or don't say, that we still stand in God's love. We still stand in Jesus' embrace. We still stand as the people that God has created us and is creating us to be. Nothing can change that. That, to me, is good news. What say you? Let's pray. God, as we go into the world, as a people trying to exercise faith, as a people trying to live in joy, as people trying to be hopeful and peaceful and loving, may we go remembering that there is absolutely nothing that we can do to shake your love away. There is absolutely nothing that we can do to change that worth that you have instilled in us. 
You say that we are of infinite worth and there's nothing that we can do to shake it away, to alter it, to increase it, or to diminish it. May we live in that truth. May we take risks in faith. May we have grace with ourselves when we question and doubt. May we remember that our suffering is not going to be the end of the story, but that the end of the story comes only with you and your eternal perspective of your kingdom. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.